There was a little boy who wanted $100 very badly. And he prayed and prayed for two weeks and nothing happened. So he decided to write a letter to God requesting $100. And when the postal authorities got his letter and saw it was addressed to God, they thought, we'll send it to the President of the United States. That'll work. And so off it went. And the President got his letter, and he was, so, he was just touched and impressed and amazed, kind of amused by this little boy's request. So he told his secretary to send the little guy $50, thinking for a small kid, $50, that's pretty good. Well, the little boy was absolutely delighted when he got the money, and he sat down and immediately wrote a thank you note back to God. Dear God, thank you so much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you had to send it through Washington, D.C., through Washington, D.C., and as usual, those devils took half of it. <laughs> you know what? That's what happens when you demand a human person to be your king, is you end up paying taxes and tributes, and that's partly what we're going to look at at our lesson today. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, in spite of Samuel's dire warnings, the people demand a king. And this is really a spectacular sin for the people of God to say to their maker and redeemer, we want, a, we want to be like all the other nations. We don't want you to be our king, we want a human king. And so God, in accordance with his plan, gives them a king in the person of Saul. And any concern that Israel might have had about Samuel's warnings would have gone right out the window when Saul rallied the nation to fight off Nahash and the Ammonites, and they won a decisive victory. This king thing seemed to be working out pretty well for them. Then they were quickly forgetting Samuel's warnings. Samuel is old and gray, and he's on his way out. Saul is young and thus far seemingly invincible. And chapter 12 is really Samuel's farewell address, and he calls Israel back to their covenant Lord and to their true king. And thousands of years later, we too are called back to our covenant king through this passage. So the word covenant comes from an ancient word that means to clasp or fetter or to bind together, and I think we're familiar with that. And a covenant involves an alliance between two unequal parties, the stronger one pledges protection and defense and help to the weaker party in return for some sort of uh, allegiance or vassal status. And this is the biblical picture of God's relationship with his people, except that the inequality between the parties uh, is absolute and the initiative is completely God's. He makes covenants with his people and not vice versa. And so for those of us in the vassal position, our primary obligation is always for a total, undivided, and exclusive fidelity to our king and, uh, and our overlord. And Israel had broken this covenant by asking for a king, and it needed to be renewed. And that's the reason that uh, that's what constitutes Samuel's agenda at Gilgal. He's going to remind them of the covenant they made with God and that they're bound to him. And so the first thing, we're going, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the God of the covenant, the threat of the covenant, and the promise of the covenant. So first of all, the God of the covenant. We have come to a quantum shift in, in the history of Israel. Samuel's take, Saul has taken over as king, but Samuel is still God's spokesperson. And Samuel's primary burden is to press the case against Israel for her treason against God. There's a lot of legal language in this text. 
And he's acting as God's attorney to prove to Israel how they've broken the covenant. And the first thing he does is he obtains their testimony vindicating his own leadership. He challenges them to bear witness against him. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Open the record books. Play the secret tapes that you didn't erase. Uh, look at the bank statements. And Israel completely vindicates Samuel. No questions asked. You've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Well, why on earth is Samuel pressing the issue of his own integrity? It's kind of odd. But it really isn't because that is actually part of God's own case against Israel. Samuel is saying, God gave you a leader. He gave you a prophet. He gave me to you. And that was part of God's goodness to you. And God was keeping his part of the covenant, and you're declaring that what God gave you is good. So basically, you're testifying against yourselves. How gracious is God to send godly pastors and teachers into our lives to teach us his word? When they warn us of our sin and rebellion, we need to see that as a sign of God's love and mercy and not run the other way. Well, not only has God been faithful in providing Samuel as a prophet and teacher, but he's also been faithful in his protection. And Samuel gives them an extended historical report card. Remember those report cards you brought home about God's dealings with them, and they fail on every account. There's a pattern, and we all know it. There's apostasy, then there's a crisis. Then they cry for help, and God delivers them over and over again. And Samuel reminds them of God's faithfulness throughout their history. He sent Moses and Aaron. He sent Gideon. He sent Jephthah. He sent Samuel over and over again. God delivered his people. And their own history is another witness against them. And it's here that we see the amazing math of grace. Okay, new math is confusing enough. But the math of God's grace is incomprehensible. God is gracious beyond measure and extravagant in keeping his covenant. His mercy is totally disproportionate to their rebellion and apostasy. And Samuel drives home his point about their spiritual amnesia. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was was your king, and it only took a new crisis with Nahash for the memories of God's trustworthiness to dissolve into fear. And instead of a cry for help, they demanded a king. And if, instead of seeking deliverance through the Lord, they specified the method by which deliverance must come. Now, we would never do that. We would never do that. And instead of trusting that God would provide in his time and his way, as he always had, they decided that having a king was the way to solve their problems once and for all. Well, in case no one has noticed, we are in an election year. Politics offers the illusion, and it's an illusion, that there are political solutions to spiritual problems. Newsflash. The problems that arise from our rebellion against God and that come from our depraved, sinful nature will not be solved even when we have a new president. It's not going to happen. Well, Samuel never gives up. He's jealous for the honor of God in the hearts of his people, and he tells them, you've got what you want, so be it. The alternatives are very clear for the people and the king. They could live obediently under the Lord's word, or they could rebel and suffer under his hand, and it's going to be their choice. 
Israel's gone from a theocracy to a monarchy. Did it solve the problem of the heart? No, because the human heart does not change under any earthly regime. And that brings us to the threat of the covenant. And Samuel wasted no time in demonstrating that the God of the covenant is not a wimp. There is nothing like a visual aid to bring home a point. Now, thunderstorms are not unusual here in Clearwater. I think we may be the thunder and lightning capital of the world. Um, they're not a big deal. We're just we're accustomed to them. But let me tell you, if we had a blizzard in January and got a foot of snow, we would be talking about the miracle on Gulf to Bay for a very long time. And Samuel announces that a large, a huge thunderstorm is on the way, and then he calls on the Lord, and voila, there was a ginormous thunderstorm. And the people feared the Lord and Samuel. Well, I bet they did. Samuel said it was during the wheat harvest, the beginning of the dry season. So it wasn't a complete impossibility, but it was unusual enough that it got Israel's attention. And the storm was clearly a sign, but what did it mean? Well, it showed Israel what agencies of destruction God merely held in his hand and how easily he could bring them to bear in fulfillment of the curses of the covenant. This was a live demonstration of what Samuel called the hand of the Lord being against you. And it reinforced the idea that God could bring about any of this at even the most unlikely time. So God is pointing out that their wickedness is still great. God is pointing out that his threats are not empty threats. So do not mistake God's patience for his indifference. God is never indifferent to sin and rebellion, no matter how we try to disguise it. So don't think that God doesn't observe your sin and that he's simply going to ignore it. Well, at last, the point came home. And in verse 19, then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Israel fears the Lord and Samuel, and it's only when God's people see their sin from his perspective is there hope that they will turn from it. How can the living God get you to fear your subtle idolatry, be alarmed by it, be repulsed by it, or even be aware of it unless he shows you how odious and repulsive your sin is to him? And if God does grant us that sight of our own sin, and his displeasure with it. We can be sure he doesn't do so just to make us tremble and be afraid, but he does it so that we'll tremble and be restored. First Samuel uh, chapter 12, we see both the kindness and the severity of God that Paul talked about in Romans 11. I think uh, the hymn says it best, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. And so that brings us to the promise of the covenant. What does God do with, with his people when they have created spiritual disaster, when they have charted their own course, when stripped of uh, all its camouflage is nothing less than rebellion and outright treason? What does he say to this people when they have finally come to see the reality of how ugly their sin really is? He says, do not be afraid. But we need to stop right there and be amazed. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. And I think, isn't that a misprint? Shouldn't it say, be afraid? You've done all this evil. And now, if I had written the text, it would say, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. But that's not what it says. How does Samuel address their fear? 
He does tell them that they have done all this evil, but he doesn't try to console them. He doesn't tell them their sin isn't all that bad. Their judgment is deserved, but don't be afraid. Well, why? Because God is as great in his forgiveness as in his threats. Samuel is reminding them that they got themselves into this mess through their own evil. He doesn't say, go back and wallow in your guilt, relive your bad mistakes, your tragic mistakes. Let's push the replay button one more time so you can really feel bad. Because no amount of human misery makes atonement for sin. I'm going to say that again. No amount of human misery makes atonement for sin. You simply go forward in faith in the Lord from that point on. You confess, you repent, you bend the knee, and you trust that God is going to work it into his story. Your sin and my sin, Israel's sin, will be turned around and used in his bigger purpose. How can God do this? And why would God do this? Why would God have anything to do with people who have committed treason against him? Because he is the covenant God. Everything hangs on the mercy of God's great name. The Lord will not, in verse 22, abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. God's allegiance to his own name is the foundation of his faithfulness to you. If God ever forsook his supreme allegiance to himself, there would be no grace for us. If he based his kindness to us on our worth, there would be no kindness to us at all. We are stiff-necked, rebellious, and ungrateful. Free, unmerited grace is our only hope to be otherwise. And the basis of that grace is not the worth of our name, but the infinite worth of God's name. God made the decision to have a people for himself, and he will. He will never go back on that decision. He will not forsake his people. Here is grace greater than all our sin. You do not try to go back and reverse all the irreversible consequences of your sin, but gladly accept fresh grace today, right now, from God. Do not think that that grand mistake that you made is the first bad sin that God has ever seen. It's not. And it's only by His grace that we become His people, and it's only by His grace that we remain His people. We can't go back and fix the past, but we can know that we're forgiven. So fear, love, and serve him starting today. Well, finally, Samuel promises to pray for the people and their welfare. Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Does that remind you of anybody? Of anybody who prays for you? Samuel, through his example, is pointing us to Jesus. We have a great high priest and prophet who intercedes for us at the throne of God every day as well. The Apostle John wrote, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Romans 8, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Our God is the God of the covenant, and he does not abandon or forsake his weak, sinful, faltering, and covenant-breaking people. And that brings us to chapter 13.
where chapter 12 closes with the renewal of the covenant, chapter 13 opens with confusion. Verse 1 literally reads, Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. The New American Standard has chosen to indicate that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned another 42 years. The New King James says that Saul reigned a year, and when he had reigned two more years, he chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. We know that Saul had a son who was Jonathan, who was old enough to lead a battalion at this point. So there are clearly some transcription is issues uh, that we don't have time to deal with today. I've read lots and lots. It's very confusing. And even the conservative scholars don't all agree with each other. So it's way over our heads. So another confusing thing to me in this passage is, it, it just in general in 1 Samuel, is the presence of the Philistines. Does anybody else find the Philistines to be a bit confusing? They're dashing here, they're dashing there, they're taking the ark here and there, they're giving it back. So it's, it's really hard to know everything that's happening. You know, we know in first, from 1 Samuel 9 that the Israelites are in some sense, they're like slaves or they're vassals of the Philistines. We know the ark was taken captive by them for a short time and they gave it back because it was the gift that kept on giving. We know in chapter 10 that when Saul is told by Samuel he's, he's going to be the king, that he prophesied in, his, in an Israelite city, but that was also a Philistine outpost. And in chapter 11, we're told of this Ammonite attack with the great victory. And it's like, well, how can they muster for war and have a war when they're under the jurisdiction, it seems, of the Philistines, and how can he maintain any kind of an army when he's being they're in occupied land? So, it, you know, I did quite a bit of reading on this, and because I was just in general confused, and it, this is what I finally learned: it doesn't seem that the Philistines intend to utterly wipe out the Israelites, but they just want to keep them in subjection to them because slaves are more valuable than dead bodies. Does that make sense? They want, they want them to be able to work for them. They want their crops. They want all of those kinds of things. But the other thing is that Israel can serve as a buffer between the Philistines and other nations. So we'll battle, we'll, you know, we're going to take out Israel and, and there'll be that protection. So when, whenever they muster against the Ammonites, it's like it's in the best interest of the Philistines. If the Israelites get weakened by the war, well, better for the Philistines. If they take over the Ammonites, well, that's better for the Philistines, too, because it's just more territory and more slaves and more people to dominate. So that is why I think that Saul can muster an army of 3,000 people. And this is his standing army. The people are paying taxes, as they were warned they were going to have to pay. And this is his standing army of 3,000 people. And so... The Philistines have thousands and thousands of soldiers. Israel has 3,000. That is not going to be viewed as a threat, and that is why um, Israel can wage war with the Ammonites while at the same time continuing under subjection to the Philistines. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense. And it also is going to explain why at the end of this chapter the Philistines limited the metal weapons of Israel and why only Saul and Jonathan had the swords and spears. So what we're going to see... Yeah, we can see that. Um, we're going to look at obedience brings skirmish. We're going to look at the fact that war tests our obedience. And we're going to see that disobedience leads to help, helplessness. 
So the first thing is obedience brings skirmish in the first couple of verses. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. And he sent everybody else away. Well, why does he have this small army? It doesn't tell us, but as I mentioned, I think that this would be these 3,000 men could be tolerated by the Philistines, and a larger army would cause concern. Now, this is his standing army. This isn't the 330,000 that had come to fight Nahash. And Jonathan, unbeknownst evidently to his father, attacks the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And maybe Jonathan attacked the garrison to begin taking back the land because God had told him to do this. He was in his own country of Philistine, of, of Benjamin. I'm sorry, let's just start here. But it does seem a bit odd that Saul isn't the one leading the effort against the enemy because he's the king. That's kind of his job. And the response of the Philistines to this attack, this attack is very predictable. This was a monumental insult to them, and they were going to make Israel pay. Well, I want to ask you, have you ever noticed that when you obey God, a skirmish can break out in your life? Have you ever been criticized for doing the right thing? Have you wrestled with forgiveness only to have the person you've forgiven slander you and return evil for good? Have you been kind to ungrateful people and their response is for them to even be more ungrateful and criticize you? Anytime that we obey God, we can count on a skirmish breaking out because it's one of Satan's ploys to derail us and cause us to doubt God. Well, the second thing that happens is that war tests obedience. That's the next thing we see. So the Philistines are very, very ticked off. They are annoyed. And they assemble either 30,000 or 3,000 chariots. Again, there's transcription issues that we're not sure of. 6,000 horsemen and an army so large that the people look like the sand on the seashore. Well, all I can say is they must have been out to Clear, Clearwater Beach during spring break and seen the tourists. That's, what, that's exactly what that looked like. They were everywhere. So Saul has been painted into a corner. He has no choice but to attempt to defend against this attack. And so putting the best face on the situation, he has the trumpet blown throughout Israel to rally the troops. And in, in, back in chapter 11, Saul is clearly spirit-empowered. He's angry. He sends that oxen out. He calls Israel to come fight. And all these people come, and they rally. But he seems far less certain here, far less forceful, and it's evident that uh, far fewer than 330,000 people show up. And then when they see the size, these people see the size of the Philistine army, they're absolutely terrified. So they begin hiding in caves. They hide in thickets. They hide in pits. They hide in graves. I guess no looking for hiding people in tombstones. I mean, just amazing. Some cross the Jordan into Gad and Gilead. Saul summons the troops to assemble at Gilgal according to the instructions that Samuel gave him when he was told he would be Israel's king. So we're all going to, everybody we have, we're all going to come to Gilgal. Well, what was significant about Gilgal? Well, it was the place where Israel set up the 12 stones on entering the Promised Land. It was where the surviving sons of Israel, whose fathers perished in the wilderness, were circumcised. It was where the first Passover celebration was held in the Promised Land. It was where the manna ceased appearing. And it's where Samuel had commanded Saul to go in chapter 10, verse 8, and wait for divine direction. It's where Saul was made king and where Samuel renewed the covenant in chapter 12. Now, clearly more than seven days have passed since chapter 10. And Saul was probably told, I read this in several places, that if you're being attacked, 
go to Gilgal, wait until Samuel comes and brings the word of God to you. And I think word would have gotten to Samuel uh, that Israel was being attacked when the trumpet was blown throughout the land. He would have known. And th those would have been, that would have been like, uh, if you're kidnapped, remember back in the, back in the, back in the day, remember we, we were being kidnapped, we had to have a password to say that they would know it was really us or not, when I think that was kind of this sort of a password. So Samuel's instructions are very specific. Uh, Saul is to go to Gilgal and wait for him to arrive. And it's going to be seven days before he gets there. But, and Samuel's going to offer the burnt offerings. He's going to offer the peace offerings. And at that time, Samuel's going to tell Saul what he should do. Well, during this seven-day waiting period, Saul agonizes as he watches his army evaporate. Off they go. Off they go. And they're filled with terror. And there seems to be absolutely no way out. They're going to get crushed. And Saul manages to make it through six days and most of the seventh, but when that seventh day begins to draw to an end, Saul is utterly at his wit's end. And I can just imagine what's going through his mind. Where in the world is Samuel? What could he possibly be doing that's more important than being here? Doesn't he know how things are deteriorating? Doesn't he grasp the urgency of the situation and the need to act quickly? Um, maybe he didn't get the message. Maybe he didn't hear. I don't know. I'm going to give him 30 more minutes, and I'm going to have to move on without him. We've got to do this. So finally, Saul takes matters into his own hands, and he issues orders for burnt offerings and peace offerings to be brought to him. No mention at all is made of any priest taking part in this offering, none at all. But the last time these kinds of offerings were made was when the Philistines were threatening to destroy them back in chapter 7, and God showed up and the Philistines were defeated. So I'm thinking that maybe Saul viewed the sacrifice in much the same way that Israel had viewed taking the ark of God into battle with them. It was like a good luck token. Maybe making these offerings was a religious ritual that was maybe part of a formula in his mind. But at the very moment that Saul finishes offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrives. And it seems obvious that if Saul had waited just a few more minutes, Samuel would have arrived and still been on time. But it is not the king who scolds the prophet, but Samuel who rebukes Saul. What have you done? What have you done? And we can only imagine the tone of his voice. Anger, dismay, shock, disappointment, disbelief, utter horror. And Saul begins making his excuses. The people were scattering from me. You didn't come on time. Well, the Philistines were gathering at Michmash. Did you see the size of their army? The Philistines are going to come all the way here to Gilgal, and I remember just in the nick of time that I had not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Well, ladies, I have to tell you that that is like me saying, I forced myself to eat the chocolate cake. <laughs> Samuel tells Saul that he has acted foolishly. And the heart of foolishness is to reject the word and revelation of God. You know what? The Philistines are irrelevant. The scattering soldiers are irrelevant. Samuel's late arrival is irrelevant. The heart of obedience is not about weighing all the factors and all the pros and cons of possible outcomes. It is about doing what the Lord commands regardless of the position of the enemy, the desertion of your friends, and the lack of visible resources. 
Samuel tells him that he has not kept the commandment of the Lord and that his kingdom would not endure after him. The Lord has sought out for a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not command kept what the Lord commanded you. So this is, isn't the beginning of the end for Saul. This is the end. And it will be years before he loses his life in the throne, but it is over. It's over. Disobedience has dire consequences, just as Samuel warned them in chapter 12. And Saul will be replaced by a king after God's own heart, a king that actually desires to obey God. Now, at first glance, these consequences seem to far outweigh the gravity of Saul's offense, but this is not the case. All disobedience is sin, all of it. John Wesley said there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. One commentator had this to say, I thought it was real profound. Men are very incompetent judges of God's judgments because they see but very little, either of the majesty of the offended God or of the heinous nature and aggravations of the offense. For instance, men see nothing but Saul's outward act, which seems small, but God saw with how wicked a mind and heart he did this, with what rebellion against the light of his own conscience, as his own words imply, with what gross infidelity and distrust of God's providence, with what contempt of God's authority and justice, and many other wicked principles and motions of his heart unknown to men. Besides, God clearly saw all that wickedness that yet lay in his heart, hidden, and foresaw all his other crimes, and therefore had far more, far more grounds for his sentence against him than we can imagine. So my question is, how many of us are in a war of obedience today? Because, you know, obedience is not merely doing what God commands. The Pharisees followed hundreds of rules, and their self-righteousness earned Jesus' scorn. Obedience is a matter of the heart. Do I want to please God? Do I delight to show my love by obeying, even in the most difficult situations? Why is it that when I think of obedience, the first thing that comes to my mind is gritting my teeth and being dragged, kicking and screaming to do the last thing on earth I want to do? Do you all relate to that? Yeah. But you know what? If I truly grasped what God was asking of me in the desperate situations in my life when obedience seems impossible, I would rejoice. I would rejoice. Why? Because God is going to reveal himself to me and strengthen me in a way that would never happen if I were not in a war of obedience. Trusting God to deliver and provide as he has done countless times is sometimes the furthest thing from our minds. And it certainly appears that believing God never entered Saul's mind either. It's very sad. And that brings us to the last point, that disobedience brings hopelessness. Help, helplessness, I'm sorry. Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Samuel left, and these haunting words, and the word of God went with him. What a devastating loss. Many Israelites had hidden to save their lives. Weapons were unavailable. Raiders were free loading throughout Israel. Saul's few troops were demoralized. But the worst of Saul's liabilities was that he was without the guidance of Yahweh. 
To be stripped of the direction of God's word is to be truly impoverished and open to destruction. Now, it's one thing to be in terrible distress. It is another to be alone. It is one thing to make a bad choice. It is another to run from God. Saul's disobedience profoundly impacted his people. Our disobedience profoundly impacts our people as well. Our sin has a ripple effect and can cause those we love to become discouraged and to doubt God. So this chapter closes on a rather discouraging note, doesn't it? But even in the most hopeless situations, God is still the God of the covenant. And we get a glimpse in God's promise to provide a king after his own heart that this story is far from over. So what do we learn? First of all, don't be surprised when your obedience brings you into conflict with the world. Don't be surprised. Secondly, don't be surprised that your obedience to God is going to be tested during conflict and it might seem like you're going through war. Third, don't be surprised that you can't obey in your own strength. Having even the desire to obey God is a supernatural gift and work of the Holy Spirit. So ask God to make you a woman after his own heart. And finally, sharpen your focus on Jesus. Jesus obeyed his Father in the war of all wars. He became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, that is us, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He obeyed when we couldn't and wouldn't, he died so we didn't have to, and he is infinitely worthy of our trust and devotion. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, and my all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being the God of the covenant. We thank you for being faithful to your name and to yourself and for the fact that you love and redeem sinful, selfish, rebellious people who commit treason against you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you sent him to live the life and live obediently in a way that we never could, we'd never be able to. He died the death that all of us owed you. He chose to do it because of the joy that was set before him. We thank you that he is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the covenant. He is the picture of your faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that we would know him. I pray that we would yield to him. I pray that you would teach us that there is great, great joy and obedience. And I pray that you would make that a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.